All right, church, open up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. I missed you last week. I was uh, at this exact time. I was an hour ahead of you in Montana overlooking the Yellowstone River, uh, about to spend another day in Yellowstone with my son. I texted Andres and Lucas to say, man, I'm thinking about you guys, praying for you. I miss being with my home church when I'm not, when I'm not with you guys. So uh, I got to participate in church much later than the rest of you did, thanks to our team that does uh, live stream and all that, so kind of fun. Um, Tracy, did Tracy go already? See, we didn't rehearse this very well, Tracy. Get up here, Tracy. Um, Tracy's going to kind of help me uh, this morning uh, a little bit. Um, I want Tracy to go ahead and pick up my guitar here, and Tracy, if you would, just just strum and open uh, all, all six strings. Just strum it so we can kind of hear what that sounds like. Um, and then I'll give you further instructions as we go here. So listen carefully. Okay, do it again. Okay, does that sound how some of you play guitar? About like that? Uh, if, if you don't play guitar, that's about how it sounds. Like you just strum strings and it's like, okay, cool. Now... Through the magic of Tracy knowing how to play guitar, watch this. Tracy, play an E chord. Okay, now pick each string nice and clear for us. And strum it again. Much better, right? All right, give it up for Tracy. Tracy, put it down. I have more for you later. Um, Tracy's like, what am I supposed to do? I'm like, just everything I tell you to do, just do it, and we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, we are talking about uh, dwelling well in the house of God. Uh, and we're going to get to chapter 3 here shortly, where it refers to the church as this, this gathering of the saints, um, as, as the household of God, as this family of faith. And what First Timothy is all about, the reason we're calling this dwell well in the house of God, is that we know how to behave as a family of faith, because God's revealed it to us. And so 1 Timothy is about living well together, not just tolerating each other, not just putting up with each other. How do you dwell well as Christian brothers and sisters? That's what we're looking at. And specifically today, we're going to get into a section of Scripture um, that is absolutely awesome and gives us so much clarity, especially, I think, in today's uh, sort of culture, all the things that you hear going on. Uh, you're going to hear some things in this room from this text uh, that you'll just go, wow, that sounds uh, completely different than the, the notes, the sounds that I'm hearing coming from most other places in culture. Specifically, how does a family of faith that is made up of males and females get along. What are we to do in our maleness and in our femaleness to give God praise? There's some distinct things as a male that, that we should be pressing into and guarding against. There are specific things as females that you ladies need to lean into, press into, and guard against. And this is one passage of many in scripture that deal specifically with that. We did a series um, at the start of COVID, uh, January 20, 2020 is when it was, and it was called Beautiful Day for the Neighborhood. It was all about the idea 
of, um, of being a church. And that God blesses the church to spill out and be a blessing to the neighborhood. Anyone remember that? It was a Mr. Rogers theme. I had a complete Mr. Rogers. Thank you. I'm glad someone remembers these things. Uh, because sermon prep is like building a sandcastle every Sunday, spending all kinds of detail on it. Then the tide comes in, washes it away. It's completely gone, and you get to start over. I like doing that as a kid. I guess I like doing that as an adult because I keep doing it. Uh, but it is so, so... I'm just rejoicing that someone remembered that series. So... In that series, here's what we talked about. God has designed the church perfectly. There is a perfect design to the church. And sitting side by side with that is the second reality that answers the question in your mind right now that says, oh yeah? Well, how come church is the way it is? I know it's designed perfectly, but why is it the way it is? Here's why. Because there is a perfect design to church, but there is, there is flawed execution in the church. Sorry, I'm just messing with this. Tape didn't help, and I'm not sure what's happening, but I will try to not deal with it. Um, there's perfect design to the church. There's always flawed execution. That doesn't mean incessantly there is flawed execution, but things get out of whack, right? Same is true with the family. Do you know that your marriage has a perfect design to it? Your parenting has a perfect design to it? But there's flawed execution. So here's what we said in that series. When there is flawed execution, return to the perfect design. Don't blow up the church. Don't run from the church and leave it all together. Say, see, it's broken. Realize there are sinners leading and participating in every church. That's why there's flawed execution. Go back to the perfect design. That's going to play really well with us today because we are talking very specifically about how do we glorify God as male and female. How do we do that? What has God revealed to us in the ways that glorify Him? We're not left to our own devices. We're not left to our own mindset of how to best do that. There is a perfect design to how males and females individually and together glorify God. That perfect design has flawed execution. And here's the reason. Lean in. It's you. Yes, you, all of you. Every one of you. Well, how about you, Dave? Of course. Of course I'm in that. It is us that that has the flawed execution of God's perfect design. So, Let me just say at the start of this, as we talk about gender and gender confusion and gender clarity and roles of men and women in the church, already that's a hot button issue for some of you. Some of you are going back to a conversation you had, a mistreatment you had, a a bad perception that currently exists that is not biblical, it's culturally informed. Some of you have had wicked things done to you in the name of Jesus Christ from church leaders that look and sound an awful lot like me. Perfect design, flawed execution. When that happens, not if, when that happens, return to the perfect design. God, how have you designed this? Why does this feel so awful? Why is this going so bad? Go back to the perfect design design. Today's text is one that in, I would say, recent decades, I've only been alive for for now five decades, so I can't speak to all decades, but 
I'm a student of history, and, and really sort of since the sexual revolution in the 60s, in America at least, I would say that this text has begun to be increasingly under the microscope, and it is, uh, it is both a punching bag text for people, and it is a poster boy text for people. Let me explain. Sin affects our sexuality and our view of gender. Part of our brokenness is in the area of our sexuality. When I do premarriage counseling, I am recognizing that two sinners are about to stand before God and witnesses and say, I do, to this covenant of marriage, and they are both coming broken. Why? Because sin affects everything, of course, including our sexuality and our view of gender, our mindset around gender. Would you agree with me that there is ongoing racial tension due to sin? How many would agree with that? Raise your hand. Okay. I don't think we've nailed it yet. I think we have a long way to go. So just as there is ongoing racial tension due to sin, there is ongoing gender tension due to sin. Why? Because race and male or female is just another dividing line that sinful man wants to uh, separate people from. It's a dividing wall between people groups. Borders, income, skin tone, body parts. It's just a long list of how sinful man has done this. Now, just as there is a need for true disciples to bring racial reconciliation by this radical new nature that we are given in Christ, so there must be gender reconciliation. How? By this radical new nature that we have in Christ. This text is going to steer us along that path. 1 Corinthians 12.25 says this, that there may be no division in the body. If you walk in here and immediately have biases towards people that look like you, however you define it. I just walked up to Andres. I said, glad you got the, the, the memo on dress code for pastors today. It's sweaters, evidently. He wears sweaters all the time. I'm just coming in line with Andres. You might walk in and be like, there's no one like me here. No one wears sweaters. There's no place for me. That's a silly dividing line, right? It could happen. But people do go, come in here and say, is there a place for me? Are there people my age here? Are there people my color here? Do they have the same uh, amounts of, of melanin in their skin? Is my gender represented here? I mean, we do this as human beings. Like that, that is a natural part of things. That there may be no division in the body. God is revealing to us perfect design on how to come in tune with him to do that. So, 1 Timothy 2 has become a punching bag and a poster boy. For who? Here's number one. Distorted secular feminists point to this passage amongst others as proof positive that Christianity is misogynistic. Raise your hand if you've heard of that term before. Probably most of us have. It's being popularized 
It's being spoken all the time. It's being thrown around. What is it? It's bias or prejudice against women and or hatred of women. Interestingly, does anyone know the counterpart of hatred towards men? Does anyone know that word? Anyone at all? Go to Wikipedia. You will find this much on misogyny. I forget the word. I looked it up last night to be smart. I, don't, I forgot it. Wikipedia knows it. Whatever the word is. <laughs> Matt's looking it up. I can tell. There's this much on it. Now, that's a whole side conversation. But any attack on God's perfect design comes from the mind and will of Satan, the enemy of God. Any attack on that is is coming from the will of Satan to dismantle and disintegrate this verse in 1 Corinthians 12.25, that there may be no division in the body. If we can get men and women fighting against each other, that's the will of Satan. So, distorted secular feminists point to this verse as proof positive that Christians hate women, or at least are prejudiced against them. Secondly, this verse is the poster boy verse for Bible-toting, Bible-quoting people, perhaps mostly men, but I don't think only men, who point to this verse to continue their distorted, wicked belittling of and domineering of women, all while holding their Bible, all while quoting their Bible. And this verse is used by what I believe are true disciples who are trying to keep in step with the Spirit and trying to keep in step with culture trying to keep in step with the times. Anyone find that challenging sometimes? God, is this in step with culture and the times in favor somehow of keeping in step with the Spirit? Don't let me go that way. But am I keeping in step with the Spirit and just just completely ignoring the whole entire world around me? Don't let me go that way. I'm not a disembodied soul. I'm, I'm here. I'm present. How do I do that? I think true disciples who are trying to keep in step with the Spirit and keep in uh, step with the times are taking this verse and they are reimagining the historic interpretation and buying into helping God fit with the culture that we have right now. So we'll get more into this. I, I'm going to say next week several times, but it's not really next week. This passage is being done in two laps. Okay, lap one is this week. Next Sunday, we're doing our 15th year birthday celebration. It's going to be a super fun time out front. We're praying for no weather event like last Sunday. I heard you guys had. We had a little bit of snow in Montana, but nothing like what you had here last Sunday. Um, And then the week after that is our annual Vulnerable Children Care Sunday, where we're just going to, we're going to celebrate what what God is doing, we're going to pray to God, and we're going, to, we're going to highlight that. So that's on November 14th. So then on November 21st is lap two of this passage, okay? So the next lap around on November 22nd, we're going to look more into this, but what we see are organizations, churches, universities, parachurch ministries, authors, prominent celebrity pastors 
that in my opinion are caving to a biblical standard of what God has said is the perfect design. And they are caving to pressure around them to uh, either blur the line or take away the line of very clear distinctions of male and female in Scripture. And they are doing that to the detriment of God's design. So what do we do with, with this? Again, I, I think there's a huge cultural shift that has and is taking place. I, I can't fathom, I had a general sense, and I would throw this out from the pulpit, five, ten years ago, what's coming. It has arrived here quicker and with more force and with more easy acceptance of the general population than I ever imagined. We are in the middle of a massive cultural shift in the Western world. Here's what I believe. Here's the great, great news. Christians can and must speak into and shape culture. I read a great book by a Japanese author called Culture Care. I highly recommend it to you. He's an artist. And it's a really out there kind of book. It's very much from a Christian worldview. But it has this sense that Christians are to care for culture. Do you remember who said that we we must be salt and light? Who said that? You know it. Yeah, you're like, I think it's Jesus, but it can't be that easy. It is. I gave you an easy one. That's like right over the plate. Come on. All right. You must be salt and light. Yes, Jesus was the answer in church. Our Lord and Savior. So like salt, Christians, he says you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say try to be salty. Try to muster up saltiness. Christian, you are the salt of the earth. Doesn't salt flavor things? It brings out flavor, right? Flavor the culture with truth. With this incredible, beautiful picture of male and female created in the image of God, functioning uh, in distinct ways that complement one another. That show off a holy God in all of who he is. But also like salt, we preserve. Is culture sometimes rotting and decaying? Say yes. Yeah. In many different ways, culture is rotting and decaying. The arts are rotting and decaying. Don't you love that Angel is making movies that glorify Jesus Christ in a general industry that doesn't tend to promote a good, godly, worldly, uh, uh, Christian worldview? Man, that's powerful. Would that we would have lots of Christians permeating society, preserving the staff room, of teachers over at John Muir Middle School, bringing the light and truth and hope of the gospel to that place, preserving it. So here's the subtitle to this morning is Understanding Freedoms and Fences Regarding the Roles and Responsibilities of Men and Women. I used this term a little bit ago. I think freedoms and fences is a great way of looking at scripture sometimes. And just saying, God, where are the hardline fences that you say thus far and no further? That provides loads of security for us as children. Do not cross this line. It's called the curb and it leads to a street. You may die if you do it. Yes, mommy. Right? Thank you for that. That's really good to know. 
But where are the freedoms then? Where are things that are, uh, that are you know, open for us to create and to play and to dream and to think and to try stuff out? That's sort of the framework that we're going to use over these two weeks. Specifically, this is talking about when we gather for worship. Can we just remember that this isn't church? Church doesn't happen on Sunday at 9 o'clock, right? Who's the church? We are, right? So, so church happens as we walk out these doors and we go to lunch. But there is something special and commanded about this right here. We are to gather with other believers, and there's something really powerful. Could we all have prayed and thought about the names of Jesus and even said them out loud and heard our own voices and then thought about what he's done and what he's doing and what he will do and said those out loud? Of course, I hope you do that all the time. But there's something different when you gather with other people and just it's just around you all over the place going, that's right. God, you're so much bigger and grander than I, than I even remember. I forgot about that name of Jesus. So there's something powerful that comes when we obey God by gathering as Christians uh, like we're doing right now. This passage is specifically talking about when the church is gathered. So if you want to write these, uh, these R's down, you can. When I'm thinking about what are the fences and freedoms that we have, here's, here's what I'm going to be getting at. Are there ideas or practices? Are there ideas or practices that need to be reformed? Are there ideas or practices that need to be repented of? What does repent mean? It means turn around. We were walking this way when it comes to uh, how men and women function in the church. We need to repent of that. We need to actually turn around and stop doing that. Are there ideas and practices that need to be run from? Why did Joseph run from Potiphar's wife? Because it was sexual sin. And you don't sit there and pray about sexual sin with someone you're about to enter into sexual sin with. You run. You leave your outer cloak behind if necessary. There may be things that we uncover in this that you go, oh, God, you've just shown me. I have to run from this. This is absolutely destroying me. It's destroying my marriage and family. It's going to destroy my future marriage and family. So we run, and all of a sudden, verses about God being our fortress and our refuge and our safe place and our foundation make sense to us. All right, are there ideas or practices that need to be reformed, repented of, run from, or remain? Are there things we're doing right now in application to scriptures like this in 1 Timothy 2 that we should just keep doing? Because as we teach through this, as we think through this text, we say, yes, that is the way we should be doing this. We should remain steadfast in this. I'll tell you one of the hardest R's to do on this list is remain. My wife and I, over the years, we've been married 27 years. And a couple months ago, I realized, wow, that's, that was my 25th year as full-time pastor somewhere youth ministry, college ministry, whatever. And as we have pastored and married, we don't feel like our theology, we feel like we've grown up, that, that God has certainly grown our thinking and, and challenged it in all these different ways. But we have seen so many friends, family, ministry cohorts, if, if this is just sort of uh, 
biblical Christianity that's, that's, that's been around for a long time, we've seen so many people just spinning off and we feel like they are moving away from us. Remaining centered on scriptural ideas will cost you. It'll be one of the hardest tests you will face. Young people, particularly young people, I think at Christian schools, I just took Tegan to preview day at William Jessup, and just, you know, mind blown that you could pray before class. What? You can't do that at Pioneer High School. They certainly don't do that at Pioneer High School. If you're a young person remaining true to what Scripture says for your gender and your sexuality, prepare to be tested in it. It's the way to go, but prepare to be tested. It's going to be really important as we think through these topics, and I am going to get there, don't worry, to take our biases and submit them to God. To take our natural bent, our natural bias, and submit it to God's Word. I mentioned that we were at preview day a couple days ago up at William Jessup, and I had a guy come and talk to me. They were sitting next to us in sort of a sample class we were doing. And he found out I was a pastor. Actually, that's 10 kids. He goes, yeah, I've got a bunch of kids. I don't know how I'm going to afford them. I'm like, oh yeah, what's a bunch? He's all 10. I'm like, that's a lot. (laughs) Um. I bumped into him afterwards, we exchanged info, he's from Martinez, and just kind of hit it off, and he said, hey, as a pastor, he said, what's your take on on William Jessup? And I said, you know, when I went here at San Jose Christian College, that's what it used to be called, I said, what God did in that time for me was he challenged my biases, he exposed my biases. The scriptures say that there are traditions made by man that are handed on down, and they may not be bad. It's not bad to eat turkey on Thanksgiving. It's not bad to eat ham on Thanksgiving. That may start World War III in your home in a few weeks. But those are just traditions, right? Kind of benign. They're not biblical. But rooming with a guy from India, rooming with a guy from South Korea, my worldview of the story God is writing and how he's writing it and who he's writing it in was just blown up in the best of ways. So I said, man, San Jose Christian College has remained, now as William Jessup College, Christ-centered, biblically honoring higher education. Exactly what their tagline says. And last preview day, I had my guard up. This preview day, I was like, man, I've got a daughter who's been there for two and a half years. This is still the same place that's, that's grown and, and, and done that. How do we live under God's word and approach this passage? Quite simply, let me challenge you to do this. I want you to become indifferent to the message until you have read it and understood it carefully. That's what I mean by checking your, 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 your biases. Become indifferent to what it says. Just try and get at what does God's word actually say on this and don't get three words in, and immediately get defensive. Yeah, but, 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 wait a minute. Or immediately have your biases come in and say, well, but if you do that, it opens the door for this. And I experienced that. That can't be right. Then and only then, after you've read it carefully and understood it, then and only then do we turn and reconstruct our lives 
and culture in light of what the scriptures say. This is what it means to be a disciple who is meekly receiving the implanted word, which is what James tells us to do. Someone breaks into your home and you pray one of the vengeance psalms. There's many vengeance psalms in our songbook, right in the middle of our Bible. Or you come across a passage in Romans that says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. What's your natural bias? Amen and amen. Lord, let it be done quickly. That guy ripped me off. We love to receive. We love to meekly receive that aspect of the word in that season, right? How about in an area that may be very raw, very tender, very confused for us? Will we meekly receive it? So here's where the passage is going. It's men's and women's attitudes and actions in three really distinct areas. Prayer, in teaching, and authority. So let me get to verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I desire then... That in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So we're going to take this section this week. And like I said, in a few weeks, we will move on and take the second section. To get to this, I need to go back and set this context up regarding men and women. As you look at my guitar, this guitar has a very specific design with a very specific intent. If I start to bang on this guitar's body, uh, it will begin to change the sound. If I begin to take these um, tuning knobs and begin to tweak them, even just a little bit, it begins to take the design of that guitar, and it still creates sound. It still creates some kind of semblance of what it's designed for, but it's decidedly less than how it was designed to play and perform, right? And even the untrained ear can hear it. Men and women are designed by God to gloriously fit together. I met a little boy yesterday who I think is nine days old. Everly had the hardest time. She's seven. She had the hardest time going, so she's one? We're like, no. One is like one year old. She's nine days old. And she was like, she couldn't get her mind around that. Tony and Laura had, had little Robert. So we got to visit them yesterday. Awesome, lush head of jet black hair. Amazing. Robert is a boy. Robert's maleness was decided and gifted to him by God. Did you know that what I just said used to not be shocking? It used to be not the slightest bit controversial? It is today. Every cell in Robert's body has been made male. So some hormones, some some hormones, some affected behavior or speech, 
None of that will change the reality that God has set apart Robert as a male, gloriously so. Men and women are equal in value, in dignity, in worth. Men and women have been set up in Christ to share in the exact same inheritance. That said, men and women are not interchangeable. If you want to write one thing down that this passage is teaching, write this down. Men and women are not interchangeable. That is gloriously true. The awesome and powerful voice of the triune God spoke and it came to be. Listen to these pairs that fit together but are not interchangeable. Day and night. And God declares it was good. Earth and sea. And it was good. Sun and moon. And it was good. Man and woman. And it was very good. Whoo! The crown of creation. Look to your left and right, right now. You don't have to say, I won't make you awkwardly say it. But I want you thinking it. You are the crown of God's creation. I mean, that's amazing. Maybe a harder truth will be this. Take a picture of yourself with your phone. And then believe the truth of what God says about you. You are the crown of God's creation. That's true of every person you lay eyes on. Every male and female that God has made, he thought up in his mind, and he said, I'm going to create this person. We sat and just talked openly about the miracle of birth. You know who gets it way more than others? Brand new parents. You know who gets it especially well? Brand new first-time parents. It's a miracle. Every day's Christmas. You wake up, you're like, I've got a kid. I wish he would sleep, but I've got a kid. Tony was in utter fog mode yesterday. It was awesome. I recognized it. Men and women are not interchangeable. What is at stake in making this mistake may be more than you've ever considered. Let me read a little bit from an article from Kevin DeYoung. The elders are going through an excellent book I would recommend to you. It's about this thick. It's an easy read. It's a really powerful sort of primer on this subject. It's called Men and Women in the Church. In prepping for this series, I've spent more time praying over this message and the one in three weeks. God, would you help us to humbly and meekly receive your word on this truth? Would you help me not to cave to outside pressure? Would you help me not to cave to what the people think and what the people might want? God, just help us to walk in the way. There's no fear in coming to a good, loving, all-knowing God and saying, God, help! There's so much gender confusion in and outside the church. We need your word. We need your clarion call on this. Listen to this. Kevin Young says this, In every pairing, each part belongs with the other, but neither is interchangeable. That God created us male and female has cosmic 
and enduring significance from start to finish, the biblical storyline and design of creation itself depends upon the distinction between male and female as different from one another, yet fitted for each other. That last sentence is profound. From start to finish, the biblical storyline and design of creation itself depends upon the distinction between male and female as different from one another, yet fitted for each other. Church, I know you see this. The difference between male and female is being flatlined into interchangeable sameness in the name of equality, in the name of grasping for security and saying, I'm not giving up any of my power that was won by people from a few decades ago. And so our minds get twisted and warped into all kinds of thinking about this. He goes on to say this, any move to abolish all distinctions between men and women is a move, whether intentionally or not, to tear down the building blocks of redemption itself. There's so much more to say on this, but I'm going to move on. Let's talk about men first. He says, I desire, I desire in verse 8, that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands. What is I desire? It's stronger than a suggestion. It could very easily be translated a command. It's something like a parent saying, Junior, I'd like you to come here, please. And Junior says, I'd rather not. I'm playing video games. And parent says, let me rephrase. Come here, please. There is strong apostolic authority behind his I desire. I desire that in every place men should pray. By the way, this every place is used four times in the New Testament. Every single time, it's talking about what's happening right here. The gathered ecclesia, the church coming together in worship of God. So he's talking specifically about what we're doing right now. Remember from the opening verses of this very chapter, he says, first of all, pray. First of all, pray. Pray in all the ways that you know how for all the people that you can think of. Most of you know this if you've been at it a while, but prayer is like any other activity you can think of. You grow as you do. You grow in prayer as you pray. And the more you grow in prayer, the better it is. We have a lot of children. Part of why I love having children is tucking them in at night. I love childlike prayers. I don't say this to be cute or coy. I learn from my children at prayer time. I really do. But childlike prayers are great for children. Spiritual children and chronological children. But we want them to grow up. Childlike faith should remain. But church, I plead with you, grow up in prayer. Chapter 2 gives us four different kinds, intercession, supplications, thanksgiving, and, and prayer, sort of this general thing. Go back and listen a couple weeks ago. You can kind of hear what that's talking about. Grow up in prayer. Studies show repeatedly that the average Christian, not person, the average Christian prays when they need stuff. Is it bad to pray when you need stuff? Nope. But again, if the only relationship that you have with your children is when they need stuff, they talk to you. Otherwise, they are absolutely silent with you 
I'd say there's a rift in the relationship. I'd say there's a lot missing to that. So grow up in prayer. By the way, through this entire passage, there's two different words for man, and this is worth pointing out because it lends itself to how we interpret this, if we're getting it right or not. There's a word for man in Greek which talks about people or humanity. Pray for all kinds of people. God desires that all kinds of people would be saved. Sometimes your New Testament will translate that man. It's saying mankind. When Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men, it's this word. The word anthro is in the middle of it, anthropology, right? It's people. But there's a different Greek word that is very distinctly male, masculine. That's what it's talking about. And when we get to this part of the passage and next week, two weeks, three weeks from now, it's using that word. It's male as distinct from female. It is comparing and contrasting male and female together. So that's really important to the understanding of this. There's a clear contrasting of male and female throughout. So why does he say men pray? It's good to ask questions of a text. One of the ways you actually discover what a text means is you ask questions of it. Does this mean that men have a special ministry to pray when we're gathered as a church to lead in prayer? Is Paul commanding this because men are particularly weak in prayer and need special sort of apostolic spurring to pray? You know the whole like men and asking for directions when they're lost? Right? Maybe that translates to prayer. They're like super slow to ask God for help. They're clearly lost. Everyone knows it. So men, pray first. I don't know. Was this a particular problem with the false teachers that he's been talking about all through chapter one? Is that they were, they were prayerless in it. And so he's commanding them to it. Does this prohibit or discourage women from praying? Man, those are all great questions to ask. This is how you go into a text and say, God, what does this mean specifically? Here's a caution. Don't add meaning in that isn't there. We don't need to generate elaborate backstories to what may have been going on. Could the false teachers have been prayerless? Maybe. The text doesn't show us that. God in his sovereignty said, yep, you don't get to know that part of the story. What it does say is that in every place, Men should pray. Men in the room, listen up. Young men in the room, listen up. We are called to lead in prayer. We are called to stand up and speak up in prayer. If God has gifted you and trusted you with a wife, Lead in prayer. If he's gifted you with children, blessed you with children, lead them in prayer. You know what causes men to pray? Commands like this. Help! I don't know how to pray. As we pray and talk to our Father, we're being parented by God. He is going to give us what we need to obey the commands he's given us to do. He goes on to instruct the manner in which we are to pray. Appearance and attitude are discussed for both men and women. And with both men and women, watch how he moves from external to internal. He talks about things sort of out here and he moves into the heart, the attitude, what's going on in your inner life. And that's the, 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 the crux of it. Paul is not commanding that every single time you pray, you should raise your hands. He is describing the common prayer practice of his day. 
uh, sort of cultural fit from maybe 20 years ago, 50 years ago would be this. When you fold your hands and bow your head. We would all know what that means. Yep, I know, that means prayer. When he says holy hands, all of these talk to the posture of the inner life. Holy hands are what you do, your life. When you come in prayer, men, you come that your, uh, your life and what you have put your hands to matches the attitude of your heart, that those would be in alignment. Paul wanted the men to pray as they had practiced holiness in their everyday lives, not in wrath, not in dissension. We move on to the women. Likewise, the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. Paul is saying, ladies, I want your external appearance to reflect the heart. Dress so that those are integrated. Integrity has to do with integrating, being truthful of who you are on the inside as to who you are on the outside. We're going to celebrate Christmas here in a couple of months. God forever put the stamp that our bodies and our souls are integrated whole beings. Again, we're not disembodied souls floating around. It doesn't matter what you do with your body as long as your heart's right. Nonsense. That's a pagan way of thinking. So respectable, modesty, self-control. In short, dress to express your heart. Let me just say this really clearly. This is subjective and differs by culture and by time. Anyone have a rough idea of what a swimsuit in 1910 looks like? Raise your hand. Leave your hand up if you think it's different than the styles of today. Okay? Yeah. If you went out a 1910 thing, they'd think you escaped from a institution where you had a white straight jacket on like you're like what's happening are you okay can i cut something off like you look like you're suffocating now we could do a quick poll and say how many wish we would go back to 1910 or at least maybe the 30s or something it differs with time and it differs with generation and 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 location some of you who've traveled to different countries know that braided hair gold pearls costly attire One of the things to note that Paul is writing in this day and age that he's talking about, this would have required huge amounts of leisure time to make this happen, to get ready and look this way. It would cost, it would have have huge expense and effort to dress the way he is describing. Most of the people that he would have been talking to in these churches couldn't afford that. So immediately what that does, it creates a hierarchy. Do you see that? Beyond this, showiness and wastefulness and maybe ill-focused is that there was one more glaring no-no, and that is that Paul has tipped us off with the braided hair. The braided hair and the gold and the costly, that's the dressing of a harley. It's the dressing of a prostitute. Ladies, if you're mimicking the dress of a prostitute, that's a huge no-no for a spirit-filled daughter of the king, right? Easy. That's as easy as the Jesus answer earlier, by the way. So dwell well, men, with how you prioritize prayer and how you grow in prayer through the week. Dwell well, ladies, by how you get dressed and what your inner attitude is, not just on Sundays, but let that be a standard. 
If you are showy in the ways that you dress, how will those who are less well-off feel? Families of faith love by being considerate. That means our wardrobe choice isn't just for ourselves. If you walk into a Christian worship setting and you are struck by the high fashion, the glittering bling, the perfectly done up dues, and you find that the purpose of that Sunday morning worship seems to be ladies sizing up one another and guys checking them out, something has gone terribly amiss in worship that week. Again, this is very cultural. Anyone go to a church in the South where a lot of hats are worn by the ladies? Yeah. That's not a showy thing. Like, I think that's just, again, like that, that is a very cultural norm there. We have a delightful, wonderful woman who's a part of our church, and that's her culture, and she brings that, and she looks lovely and carries it with a lot of grace and truth, and there's nothing showy about it. Here's a giant principle, by the way. Log in your own eye, speck in someone else's eye. Do not listen to, interpret, and monitor this verse for other people, ladies. Do it for yourself. Between you and the Lord. Older women in the church, you have a special responsibility to model what good works that are adorning your soul look like to be, again, high fashion, classy, very well put together. We're all different people. But there's a way of pulling that off that I, I love. We, we've had a great track record of this here, by the way. It's an easy passage to preach on. I don't feel gla- eyes glaring at me. But older ladies, show what that looks like. And as you hear little things in speech, little envy popping out, little whatever, correct it. You have a very powerful voice in this that I don't have that frankly another male doesn't have. So families of faith love by pointing attention to God and His greatness and not to one another's dress. Let me have the band coming up. I told you, where's Lucas? Lucas isn't even here. He's gone out to lunch. There he is. Get up here, Lucas. I told him, like, it's probably going to go long. Let me close with this. I'm going to rattle off a list. It's probably going to step on someone's toes at some point. Women, let's go with you first. (laughs) Examine the motives of your heart and apply it to how you present yourself, how you dress. If you're dressing to to flaunt wealth or gain sexual attention, it's wrong. If you're dressing to get the spotlight on you and away from God, it's wrong. If you're dressing to be the envy of other women, it's wrong. Here's where it could get dicey. Stay in your seat. If shopping or runs to Ulta or clothing conversation keeps you from devoting yourself to conversation with God and the good works that he tells you out of your prayer time, change how you think about wardrobe and cosmetics. Repent. Now you've gone too far, pastor. Stop. All right, that's the end of the women's list. Men, you're up. Men, examine the priority, the frequency, and the quality of your prayer life. Boom! That's what the men get. If you're a constant doer and you never stop to pray and pay attention to your inner life, repent. If you have somehow disconnected your life and your lips from prayer, repent. God doesn't hear it. 
you're living how you want all week long and you come to church and suddenly have a life and lips that want to honor God, he sees that. If you have neglected prayer or let it slip away as less efficient or unnecessary to your busy life, repent, men. If you spend all of your time learning and not loving, repent. You want to turn your theology into experience? Pray. Let me throw up this quote and I close with this. Timothy Keller writes these words. Prayer is the way to experience a powerful confidence that God is handling our lives well, that our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things cannot be taken from us, and the best things are yet to come. By the way, as your pastor, I want to model repentance. A part of why we incorporated about five minutes of prayer that just continued out of singing prayer is because two weeks ago, we're walking through the scriptures and it says, first of all, pray. Make prayer a priority in this setting. Does it mean that we didn't pray before? No, but we've gotten off of our game of making this a central, common, regular part. So you know what you do when you read the scriptures and your life doesn't line up to it? You adjust your life to the scriptures. So watch for that moving forward. Hold us accountable as elders that that as we gather, we are spending time and nurturing and growing the muscle of corporate prayer. Let me pray. Let's still do the song, even though we're uh, past time. If you need to leave for whatever reason, no harm, no foul whatsoever. (laughs) I'm five minutes over already. Uh, Feel free to slip out. Love you much. So thrilled you're here. Um, Don't miss next Sunday. Uh, All the details are posted in various places. It's a different kind of service. It's It's going to be outdoors, sort of a very short, formal service time, but we're getting all three of our services together, two languages together, and we're just celebrating 15 years of God's faithfulness and goodness together. So let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, so much that when we sit and have conversations with you, even ones that may feel sticky or uncomfortable, uh, God, we can trust you as the good father that will guide us through and tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. God, I pray you would take the practical steps that we need to keep doing, remain doing, and just give us the courage and grace to continue in that. And Lord, should there be things that as we look back on this and say, is that really what it says? Because that seems like I'm doing it wrong. But I pray repentance would be just a regular, ongoing part of every one of our lives. As we return to the perfect design of church, we return to the perfect design of what it looks like to be a man or a woman of faith. God, I'm so thankful for each person sitting here. I'm thankful, God, for people who uh, have joined us online these last year and a half and uh, new ones that are coming in. God, we pray that you would continue to knit our hearts together in you. In Jesus' name.